I wanted to uh, just share a small moment of gratitude I had experienced today. Uh, I was sitting and experiencing coolness, dampness, shivering, and then suddenly had the thought, I'm so grateful for this practice. Imagine if we were relying upon the weather this summer for our sense of well-being and happiness. (laughs) It can really help us uh, to find happiness amidst any conditions. So it was one of those moments just of sheer gratitude. I wanted to share with you a story that uh, Lama Surya Das, maybe some of you know him, have even practiced with him. He's a Dzogchen teacher and uh, actually teaches in this area a fair bit. And this is out of one of his books. Or, um, and this story is about a time, that, some time that he spent with Nyosho uh, Kenpo Rinpoche. And it's called Wake Up Call. During the years I lived with Nyosho Kempo Rinpoche and served as his attendant, I was with him almost every day. Once I remember when he and Toku Pema Wengyal had just returned from a trip to Bordeaux, or perhaps Brittany, along France's southern Atlantic shore, where they had given some teachings. In Tibet and throughout the Himalayas, people have no beach to go to, and certainly the monks in some traditions are prohibited from swimming. So it must have been the first time that Kempo had seen the beach and observed exactly what Westerners do there. When he came back to the monastery, he began to give us the Dharma teachings about the eight worldly pitfalls, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and shame, praise and blame and then suddenly started talking about the beach and how he and Toku had gone to the very edge of the ocean. It was so big, he said in an almost childlike awe, calling it something like King Trident's house, the house of the king of the ocean. And then he excitedly described what he had seen. There were these people there, and instead of sitting and meditating or doing yoga, these people were just lying there almost naked, and doing nothing. And then when they were tired of lying there, instead of doing something, they just turned over. (laughs) And then they lay there again for another few hours. Kenpo was truly, genuinely perplexed. In retrospect, he almost sounded as if he were out of the third rock from the sun, the TV show about aliens coming down to Earth. Why were they doing that? He asked over and over. Though he couldn't understand it, he had so much compassion for them. How could they waste their precious human existence, he continued. This life that is so short, so tenuous, so precious, so valuable, so necessary. A life not to be squandered, but to be used impeccably, and usefully for the benefit and welfare of all. A life to be used to think about the future in the next life, not just to lounge around all day in the hot sun like a big sleeping lizard. Kempo was sincerely impassioned now. I just wanted to go and wake them up. Then he noticed there was a big white chair about 50 meters away, obviously the lifeguard's post. But there were two young people sitting there, he said, so I couldn't go up there. But I wanted to badly, because I wanted to climb up there and announce to everybody it was time to wake up. For all of us Westerners who heard heard Kempo's live report from the beach that day, we realized how truly empty our habits of indulgence were in the face of such devotion to life. It's a great wake-up call that Kenpo and other great masters are called to teach us, called to inspire us to wake up. And this is a call that we have all heard, or we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have left behind uh, those that are dear to us, 
uh, things that we maybe take great joy in doing, we wouldn't have uh, put ourselves through what's necessary to get here if we hadn't somehow heard this call. In being here, we begin to nurture the seeds of awakening. And tonight I wanted to talk about seven factors of mind that very directly play into awakening. These are the seven factors of enlightenment. I thought this would be a good complement to having just spent uh, time speaking about the ten paramis or the requisites for enlightenment. These requisites or prerequisites are what uh, actually lays the foundation for awakening. And with awakening, there's these seven factors of mind that really need to become dominant in the mind and powerful in order for awakening to occur. So we can see, you know, the ten paramis is that of laying the groundwork, and then these seven factors coming together in, you know, a uh, balanced and strong way for awakening. The Pali word for the factors of enlightenment is bojangas, which is made up of two words, uh, two root words, um, bodhi and anga. And bodhi meaning enlightenment or enlightened person, and anga meaning the causative factor. So thus it means the causative factors for an enlightened being or cause for enlightenment. And so this isn't going to be one talk, uh, as any of you who have been here for a while know that I like these series. So it will be spread out over a few evenings. <coughs> One way that we can look at this path to awakening is really as a journey of healing. Along this journey, we will uh, learn to relax, open to, be with our experience in a way that the deepest wounding in our lives can be healed can be let go of. It's a healing that allows us to come into a direct relationship with life where we're not constantly compounding this wounding that we may have incurred during the course of our lives. And so through the cultivation and development of the seven factors of enlightenment, we find that these factors themselves are the agents for deep healing. They help us to arrive in the present moment, to have an interest in the experience of this moment, to be able to stay calm enough, stabilized enough, to be able to see clearly. And then the healing happens quite naturally the unbinding of really deeply habituated patterns and habits that we carry that often causes more pain becomes clearly seen to us. We lift the veil of confusion, the veil of ignorance, and directly perceive experience. The Buddha once said, Bhikkhus, I do not see even one other thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of the things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, investigation or discrimination of states, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. He was also asked why they are called enlightenment factors, and he responded by saying, because they lead to enlightenment.
And these factors of mind are probably no strangers to us. They develop quite naturally as we sit here and do vipassana or insight meditation. And although each of these factors is unique and manifests differently, they all function and work together in the support of awakening. In cultivating all of these seven factors of enlightenment, we'll find that they need to be in balance, that we find that there's three arousing factors and three tranquilizing or stabilizing factors. And then we have mindfulness. The arousing factors are investigation, energy, and rapture. They help the mind to be awake and alert. And then the three tranquilizing or stabilizing factors being calm, concentration, and equanimity. They help to give a power to the mind, to give the stability to be able to see clearly. And then mindfulness is what aids in the seeing clearly and helping all of these factors to stay in balance. The Buddha also said, bhikkhus, just as this body is sustained by nutriment, subsists in dependence on nutriment, and does not subsist without nutriment, so too do the seven factors of enlightenment, they are sustained by nutriment, subsist in dependence on nutriment, and do not subsist without nutriment. He then went on to say that the nutriment needed is to frequently give wise attention. So with each of these seven factors, we need to frequently give wise attention to them. Because wise attention seems to be so important and vital as a way of getting nutriment or cultivating and developing each of these factors, I'd like to speak just a little bit about it. Uh, to help us better understand what wise attention might mean. I found wise attention translated in a few different ways. It's translated as appropriate attention, wise reflection, the proper approach, or systematic attention. In the footnotes of the Majjhima Nikaya, Bhikkhu Bodhi describes wise attention as being attention that is the right means or on the right track. This is explained as mental advertence, consideration, or preoccupation that accords with the truth, namely attention to the impermanent as impermanent, seeing the unsatisfactory nature of experience, seeing that experiences are insubstantial. So when we pay close attention to our experience, in, in a way, it's as if we come into seeing or experiencing things in alignment with truth. In hearing the phrase wise attention, we might also suspect that there is a way to have unwise attention. Unwise attention is uh, defined as attention that is the wrong means, on the wrong track, contrary to the truth, namely attention to impermanent as being permanent, um, the painful as being pleasurable, and what is not self as self, and what is foul as beautiful. Unwise attention is what keeps us cycling around in samsara. 
And wise attention is what leads us to Nibbana, liberation. When we uh, have unwise attention, we will find ourselves in quagmire of the hindrances. And the Buddha also, you know, in his speaking about hindrances, spoke about them in the way of if we feed them nourishment, they'll flourish. And if we cease to feed the hindrances, uh, they will subside. And so from this we can come to understand that when we have wise attention, we cease to nourish the hindrances. And at the, that time, we can also begin to nourish these seven factors of enlightenment. Another way that the Buddha put it was to uh, say that um, wise attention is where things are fit for attention, worthy of attention, and the unwise attention that they're not fit for attention. And when the Buddha was speaking about this, he wasn't saying that objects or experience in themselves had a fixed determination as to whether they were fit or unfit for attention. But the distinction is in how we pay attention to these experiences. So an example of this is anger arises in our experience. If we wisely pay attention, we will be present to the experience. And in doing so, we cease to feed the anger. We cease to embellish it. We're not identifying it. We're not claiming it to be who we are, our anger. We're not seeing it as being permanent. And we're seeing that it's insubstantial. And when we have unwise attention, these are the moments where we get caught in it, we get justified, we um, can have whole proliferations, elaborations, and can actually do really harmful things through this same experience. So there's a huge difference between having wise attention and unwise attention. Although there are broader ways to look at wise attention, um, some through reflection, contemplation, a key ingredient to wise attention is that of mindfulness, which is also the first factor of enlightenment. <clears throat> so I'll move on to the first factor, mindfulness. It's quite appropriate that this is the first factor because it's really, you know, a linchpin into all of these factors of enlightenment because it is what helps them to develop and take hold and to strengthen. And um, it really helps us to learn to know when they are present and it helps to know when they need to be balanced. So what is mindfulness. Mindfulness is the simple, clear illumination of any of life's experience, experiences. It's an illumination that is free of analysis, judgment, comments, stories of our lives. Some ca sometimes called a reflective awareness. It's reflective without adding anything to the experience. It's an attentiveness or presence of mind that can clearly connect with experience without wobbling. <clears throat> We find that mindf when mindfulness is present, 
present, there comes a deep intimacy with life. We are experiencing directly and immediately life's experiences through any of the sense doors. We know clearly sensations in the body. We know what's occurring in the mind. We're aware of thoughts when they arise. There's an immediate connection that is unfiltered. Actually, sometimes people have a fear that if they become mindful, that life will lose its luster. And yet we find that actually mindfulness helps us to feel vitally alive awake, alert, because there's this deep connection with experience. We find with mindfulness, when it's really strong, present, that there's a real freshness in the mind. We can experience uh, things, sensations maybe we've experienced before, but it's as if we experience them for the first time. We experience what's called beginner's mind. We aren't holding some idea about our experience based upon past experience, but we're knowing this in the moment. There's a great simplicity to this, and I think this simplicity is often a challenge for us. You know, we come from quite an intellectual culture, used to using our minds in certain ways. And then to hear that mindfulness can be a powerful uh, factor to cultivate in this journey of awakening, something that in itself is quite simple, can be a bit disarming. You know, we'd rather that there was some concept, some intellectual structure that we could think through that would guide us to awakening, than to just be with our experience in a very simple way. We find it hard to believe that mindfulness can actually lead to the deepest of wisdom or the secrets of life, as Ajahn Buddhadasa used to say. Secrets being the true nature of life, which seem like a secret because we fail to recognize the way things are. In this journey of awakening, mindfulness is said to be the master key. And through mindfulness, we can really come to know the mind. We become intimate with this mind and learn to be present to all of the different experiences that we encounter. It isn't that Mindfulness is the end goal. But it happens that through mindfulness, we begin to see clearly and to understand how it is that we keep getting caught in suffering. In seeing this, we begin to understand how to free the mind. We come to know the difference between living in the grips of grasping, and what living with an open-hearted presence, living with the mind of non-grasping, is like. To do this requires a radical departure from, or a shift from the way that we have often been living, where we are seeking happiness outside of ourselves, or where we live relating to the world uh, in the way of blaming it, 
for the moments when we are unhappy or caught in struggle. With mindfulness, we learn to shift from this outward way of looking to looking directly into the aspects of experience that we encounter in life. We learn to see things just as they are. And this is really a radical shift that happens. And again, it doesn't sound like much. You know, from sitting, looking at the outer world, seeing things, you know, grasping, or looking for happiness out there, blaming others, and then to just turning around and looking directly into experience. And yet, my husband uh, expressed this quite wonderfully once when he gave a Dharma talk. He, called, he described mindfulness as being the U-turn to liberation. You know, it's a, really an about-face into a direct relationship with experience. I'd like to share a poem by John Moffat. It's called, To Look at Anything. To look at anything, if you would know that thing, you must look at it long. To look at this greed and say, I have seen spring in these woods, will not do. You must be the thing you see. You must be the dark snakes of stems and ferny plumes of leaves. You must enter in to the small silences between the leaves. You must take your time and touch the very peace they issue from. Mindfulness takes us intimately into our experience. This poem reminded me of a retreat that I did a few years ago where it was fall, it was autumn. And for those of you who live in this part of the country, you know how spectacular this uh, area can be in autumn. And on this autumn, I was doing something different than I'd done in many other autumns where you know, I'd find myself driving around the country and just looking, admiring the great beauty of the changing foliage. And so this time, I was to spend the autumn in just one spot, not moving around much, having you know, uh, a field out in front of me surrounded by some trees and a distant hill. And that was to be where I would experience autumn. And so at the end of my retreat, I took a moment to reflect back on how I experienced autumn. And the thought that immediately came to mind was, I was autumn. You know, and it wasn't that autumn belonged to me, but it had been lived through the sense doors. It had been lived in the full changing nature of autumn. And in all of its changes, this had been experienced. And what was interesting to me in that reflection was I realized it was probably one of the first autumns where I hadn't been left grasping at the peak of autumn. So we find a deep intimacy with life. We find life living through us. I'd like to go to the Pali word for mindfulness, which is sati. And translated, it means to, to bring to mind or to bear in mind. We bring the mind to our experience. So we work with bringing our minds to everything that we experience in our lives. The breath, sensations, thoughts, emotions, sounds, touch, smells, you know, just the full array of experiences. And as we do so, we find that there are two ingredients to mindfulness. The first is the active ingredient, which is the turning of the attention to 
the experience. Now, turning towards experience. And this is accompanied by a second ingredient, which is the passive quality, which is the seeing things just as they are. We're probably all quite aware of how difficult the first ingredient is. It's, you know, this being able to remember to bring our attention to experience that we have so many habits of forgetfulness, so many times when we are just caught up in our experience. And so to break this habit of forgetfulness, we have to establish this aspect of remembering, remembering to come back. And Sayada Upandita uh, describes mindfulness as being dynamic and confrontive. And he says, we can't be lazy about this element. He says, in retreats, I teach that mindfulness should leap forward onto the object, covering it completely, penetrating into it, not missing any part of it. And sometimes we do need to be very intentional in this memory to remember, to come back. This memory you know, to bring the mind to experience, not being shy about it. You know, and one of the th- words he used on uh, the last retreat I sat with him was plunging the mind into experience. And you know, when I heard the word plunging, I just got the sense of diving into whatever's happening in our experience. And this is if we dive with the eyes wide open aware, alert. In sitting here on retreat, there's a few things that we can do that help support us in this memory to remember. One is just uh, paying attention to the postures of the body as a framework of remembering to come back. You know, this is easy to see in the sitting meditation because many times we may be sitting, we get lost, and then suddenly just become aware of the posture and it reminds us that, oh yes, we're meditating. It helps us to remember to come back and connect with our experience. In walking, when we have a, a track that we're walking back and forth in, this also can be uh, a way that helps us to remember to come back. You know that you know, when we're walking around, uh, there can be much more of a tendency to get caught up in the doing and the looking and the seeing. But just through this simplification, walking back and forth, we become spaced out and then we recognize, oh yes, we're just walking. If we're lying down, and you know, there can be reasons or causes in our lives when at times we do practice in the lying position and can be important because you know, it could be quite possible that when we die, we will be in this posture. So if we can learn to be present, attentive in this posture, it can be very helpful. And you know, it can be difficult, challenging to work with because there's a tendency to fall asleep, um, to become complacent. But if we're in the situation where we are exploring for whatever reasons this posture, you know, it can be helpful to lay with the arm up so that, uh, or the knees up, so that if we start to fall asleep, we'll notice the movement of the arm. You know, I've, I've, in my own experiences of that, have noticed that uh, it will seem like there's awareness, mindfulness of the experience, and then suddenly the hand's halfway over, and then there's the realization that, oh, sleepiness is present, and it helps to bring back that alertness, the mindfulness. And I'd also just like to um, say, remind everybody that Standing meditation is also a very valuable practice. And you know, at different times too, for different reasons, it can be incredibly helpful, such as when we're dealing with a lot of sleepiness, that instead of just sitting there bobbing and weaving, one can actually stand up and continue the uh, practice in this posture. And two, you know, 
just standing is something we do so little of in our lives because we tend to have such active lives. And so if you're standing, you know, um, and you space out, again, just the posture is going to help to remind you to come back. We can also, in our practice, use mental noting as a means to help us to remember because it helps to strengthen perception. And so when perception is strengthened, it's more likely that we will notice when uh, we're not being so attentive. And some, a couple ways that we might experience this through the noting is um, you know, if we're walking and we're noting right, left, and then notice as we note right that actually the left foot is moving forward. You know, it, it helps us to realize that we're not paying careful attention and reminds us to come back. It could also be that in using noting, um, we might pay attention to the tone of the noting. That, uh, you know, sometimes, um, the mindfulness isn't such a clear reflection when it starts to uh, have a reactiveness to it. So it could be that in a moment when we're experiencing anger and uh, we're noting, we're not noting anger, anger, but we're actually screaming the noting. Um, This can help us, if we notice that, to pay closer attention to our experience. It can also be helpful to slow down more in our daily activities, to pay close attention. In the slowing down, we begin to see, experience, perception more clearly, more accurately. And then we again will begin to notice when this starts to fail. And the gaps might shorten, the gaps of unmindfulness. Daily activities tends to be very challenging to work with mindfulness for many of us because we do have strong habits, habitual patterns that we're up against. So noticing where in the day the times are that you have trouble and giving yourself a little bit more support at these times. Really taking on these activities with care and attentiveness, with a real integrity you know, taking care to do something as simple as brushing your teeth with that same level of integrity that you call up when you sit down on the cushion to meditate. Sometimes we find it difficult to support this memory to remember when our experiences are painful, difficult. You know, why do we want to come back to this excruciating pain? Why do we want to come back to sadness or boredom? You know, it's like, why at that time do we want to come back? And this is when we're really facing habits of denial, um, habits of disconnecting as a means with coping with our experience. Habits that we may have cultivated at a time in our lives when we didn't have the skill, the tools to open to uh, deep pain and suffering. But mindfulness will help us to find balance in these moments. Will help us to cut through the identification that happens with these experiences. It will take patience, gentleness, and compassion. And the joyful aspect of working with these um, really painful states is that we are learning to shine the light of awareness 
into the shadows of our minds. We are learning to bring out of the dark these deep, uh, wounded places. And this allows us to move out of delusion or misconception. So this is the first aspect of mindfulness, the active ingredient, the memory to remember, the memory to come back, to connect with experience. The second ingredient of mindfulness being the passive, being able to see things as they are. Sometimes this is also difficult for us in that we want to analyze, judge, manipulate our experience. But faith, trust, allow us to simply rest in this seeing, this knowing of our experience. In doing so, we touch into the coolness of mindfulness, that it helps to take the heat, the reactivity out of our way of relating with experience. Mindfulness is able to do this because it's actually preconceptual. It's not based upon our ideas, beliefs about our experience. But it's just in the simplicity of seeing things as they are. You know, it's that connecting and knowing of experience. This connecting and knowing has a welcoming nature where it can accept things. It has a friendly relationship with experience. It's not trying to do anything with, but simply allowing. And this allows us to be with all kinds of experiences. It allows us to be with the unpleasant experiences in just the same way we can be with pleasant experience. So mindfulness, the first ingredient being the active element, the memory to remember, And the second ingredient being the passive element of seeing things just as they are. And we find that we bring mindfulness to all aspects of our experience. And the Buddha described this in the way of developing the four establishments of mindfulness or the four foundations of mindfulness. And tonight I thought, Um, what I would do is take some time now to do a guided meditation that is working with these four foundations of mindfulness in an experiential way. And then uh, next week I will begin to expound a little bit on these four foundations of mindfulness. So sitting comfortably, finding an ease in the body where it's supported, upright, and yet not straining. and simply becoming receptive to the experience of this body sitting.
how do we know this body? What's the direct experience? And know sensations directly and immediately. Hardness, softness. Pressure, lightness, there might be places of tightness. Diving into the experience of this body. coming so close to this experience that there is no I, me, or mine of this body. Knowing sensations intimately this body, there's the experience of breath, bringing mindfulness to this experience, sensations of breath, turning the attention towards this experience, the active quality, and then allowing sensations to be just as they are. Movement, vibration, tension, heat, tingling, tightness, Releasing, softening. Contemplation of the body in the body. Experiencing this breath as if it were your first breath or last breath. Completely new, fresh. As we pay attention to the sensations of the body, we can also experience the feeling tone of each experience. The breath may at times be smooth, fluid, may have a pleasant feeling tone. At other times, it may be harsh, jarring, which might be experienced as unpleasant. And other times, it might be quite neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. 
simply breath being known. We can apply this to any of the experiences that we have through any of the sense doors. Sounds may be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Touching sensations pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Mind states, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When we pay attention in this way, it brings us into the moment of contact with experience, which is before we have our likes and dislikes, before reactivity. As we notice pleasant experience, there may be moments when it moves into craving or unpleasant experiences, not paying a careful attention, wise attention, we move into aversion. Or if experiences are neutral, if we don't have wise attention, we simply space out, don't see clearly. As a means to working with desire, aversion, and delusion, at times paying attention, becoming mindful, of this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tone. We can also become aware of, use as a foundation of mindfulness, the knowing quality of mind, consciousness, and the different factors that often arise with consciousness. Coming to know the atmosphere of the mind. whether desire is present, hatred, whether there is calm, stillness, can pay attention to the changes of these mind states. In one moment, calmness, another moment grasping, wanting to hang on to this experience. At other times we might be strongly aware of just consciousness, this knowing quality of mind. Consciousness itself, arising 
and passing away again. We can know this directly and immediately when mindfulness is strong. The fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, or mindfulness of phenomena. This can be experienced in terms of the five hindrances. We can notice when any of these hindrances are present. Noticing of desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt are present. We notice when they are present and we notice as they disappear. We begin to see that the arising of these hindrances is caused through ignorance. And we begin to see that continuity of mindfulness helps to protect the mind from their arising. We begin to understand the natural flow of phenomena. We can apply this to the seven factors of enlightenment to know when they are present, to know when they are not present. to know that wise attention helps to cultivate them, and to know that continuity of mindfulness helps to keep them present. We can be mindful of the arising and passing of experiences through the sense doors. Hearing, arising and passing. We come to know, bring mindfulness to all of the different aspects of what we so commonly call self. We bring mindfulness to this body, to the feeling tone, to perception, volitional formations, and to consciousness. Knowing all of these aspects directly and immediately.
This leads to a deepening understanding of the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Keeping the practice very simple. Directly knowing of our experience without needing to change it, alter it, fabricate it. Just this, whatever is being experienced, close to experience, no separation, From the Buddha, whenever one dwells contemplating the body, feeling, mind, and mind objects, strenuous, clearly conscious, mindful, after subduing worldly greed and grief, at such a time her or his mindfulness is present and undisturbed, and whenever their mindfulness is present and undisturbed, at such a time one has gained and is developing the factor of enlightenment of mindfulness. And thus, this factor of enlightenment reaches fullest perfection. May all beings know the value of mindfulness. with the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods Full bliss and realize the deathless.
that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.